If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew 22, and this is a big moment in the life of our church. We've been talking from Matthew now for, uh, well, since Christmas 2018 is when we started this journey. Uh, I don't know, who can remember Christmas 2018? It feels like a while ago. A few things have happened since 2018. Uh, in December 2018, we had a sermon series called The, the Baby Who Was King. And we uh, discovered that everybody was expecting the Messiah to come and kick the Romans into the sea, except that Jesus came with a whole different way of being powerful. He came with the power of love rather than the, the power of coercion. Then we also discovered in that that something else he came as that no one was expecting, except it was written in Isaiah, it said, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. And so that was the journey, the idea that we started the journey looking at the Christmas story. Then in, from May to December in 2019, we did a sermon series called The Jesus Revolution. Does anyone remember that? Where we spent that amount of time with one sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon ever given. And the, the whole point of the Sermon on the Mount is, so how, how do we do life as followers of Jesus? So we, we did that. Then we had a break for a couple of years. There's a couple of other things that happened in 2020 and uh, the aftermath of 2021. Uh, we ended up hosting a, a, a service for the whole state through COVID and we taught the book of James. And then the following year, we looked at 1 Corinthians. But last year, we came back to it and... I don't know if you realise this, but Matthew has five distinct blocks of teaching. And we looked at one, the Sermon on the Mount, then we looked at the other four. And we looked at uh, Matthew chapter 10, where Jesus is teaching people what it means to be on mission. We looked at Matthew chapter 13, where Jesus tells all kinds of stories about what the kingdom of God is like. They're parables about the kingdom of God. We looked at Matthew chapter 18, which answers this question, how on earth do you get along with annoying people? How do you live actually in communities? What Matthew 18 is about. And, and uh, that actually prompted me to start writing a book on Matthew 18 that ended up becoming two books that I'm now working on, one on, Matthew, on John 17, and I really enjoyed having last week away working on that, uh, and also on Matthew 18. So I'm hoping in the not-too-distant future there will be, well, in certainly the John 17 book, I'm hoping will be ready for next year. Uh, and then from Matthew 23 to 25 last year, we looked at what does it mean to be religious and what, are the, what is the end times about? And we, we saw Jesus teaching on the end times. And then in, from March to April this year, we had another sermon series called The Road to the Cross, where we followed in Matthew the end of the book of Matthew. And we discovered that way back when we looked at Christmas time, there was this promise that God would be with us. And the last thing that Jesus says to us in the book of Matthew is I will be with you, even to the end of the age. And then we got to this sermon series, which we've been doing from April 
right the way through to now. And we, after today, will have spoken about every single verse in the book of Matthew, which I think, uh, I, I think that's pretty good going, don't you think? I think everybody deserves a round of applause for surviving that long. <laughs> yeah, come on, a real round of applause. Let's go. There we go. That's much better. We've got through the whole book of Matthew, and I don't know how you found it, but certainly for me, just coming uh, again and again and again to Jesus' words. My my mum actually said to me, uh, she grew up in a Brethren church where uh, sometimes people would get charts out about how everything's going to work and things would get a bit intense. But she said she, one of the things that stood out to her, someone, an older man said to her, just stick to the words of Jesus and you can't go too far wrong. And I think that's pretty true. Like I think if you want to follow Jesus, stick to his words and and you, you don't get stuck on all sorts of other parenthetical things. You, you can stick to the main game if you stick to Jesus. And I think there's been something healthy about just coming back and saying, OK, Jesus, what are your words? What does it mean for us? And today we finish uh, looking at Matthew with uh, the great commandment. They come to trap Jesus and... And ultimately, they, they're asking him, what should we focus on? How do you go at keeping your focus? How do you go at keeping your focus? There's a fair bit of recent research that's a little alarming that indicates that we, as a generation, have challenges that other generations didn't have. Do you know the average worker, I don't know if you consider yourself an average person or whether you consider yourself a worker, uh, but the average worker experiences 15 interruptions every hour. The average worker experiences 15 interruptions every hour. Another study found that of all the meetings people have, one in three of them is unnecessary. Uh, I don't know uh, how you, if this applies to you or not. Be good to most phones now have a screen time app that tells you how how it works. But people check their phones on average three hundred and fifty-two times a day. And 69% of the workforce admit that having a phone distracts them from their work. That's interesting, isn't it? I watched an interview with Tim Cook, the CEO of Apple, uh, last night. And he said, if you look at your phone more than you look into the eyes of another human being, you're doing it wrong. If you look at your phone more than you look into the eyes of another human being, you're doing it wrong. That's interesting for the chairman of Apple to say that. Apparently, having constant distractions, like notifications on your phone, reduces your IQ by more than smoking weed or cannabis. Uh, having constant digital distractions 
reduces your IQ by more than smoking cannabis. Apparently, 99% of people who work experience a loss of productivity because of unexpected interruptions. Can you identify with that? And I don't know how you process this if we're getting 15 interruptions an hour, but apparently it takes 23 minutes and 15 seconds to fully recover focus after being distracted. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees, well, it's the Pharisees, is it the Pharisees or the Sadducees? I'll look in a minute. Uh, come to Jesus and say, so how do, what do we need to focus on? I think it's an important question. We're actually going to, after saying how bad phones are, I'm going to invite you to pull your phone out. <laughs> and, and actually, just for a minute, stand up where you are. Stand, actually, that, that means, you know, stand. Yeah, on your feet, great. Uh, good to stretch. I'm going to put a slide up right now. Uh, a sli- there it is. And what I'm going to get you to do is look around and see there will be people who have phones up. And there'll be people who don't. If you don't have your phone out, can you go to someone who has their phone out? And if you've got your phone out, can you uh, talk to people who don't have their phones out? And what we want to do is get a list of the things that compete for your attention. What are the things that distract you? Actually, let's get, a, let's get you... And what we'd love you to do, if you've got a phone out, ask the people around you what you could put down for them... And let's start getting some of these answers. So you use your phone, use the QR code, and it'll take you to a question. And uh, we want to make sure that we get answers from everybody. So particularly in the Nepalese congregation, if you're younger and know how to use a phone, can you help some of the older folk who may not know how to use the phones? Uh, what are the things? And, and what we want you to do is write down the answers. It is okay if, if the answers are in Nepalese, because... Uh, those who speak Nepalese will understand them. Although I don't know if this software will cope with it. We'll see what happens. So what are the things that compete for your attention? This is one of the most important questions for you to wrestle with because if all this stuff is true, it really matters for you to be focused. It really, And we are some of the most distracted people in history. So what I'm going to do is try and stop distracting you right now. Yeah, my wife's telling me to be quiet. Uh, and let's see, so talk to the people around you and let's see if we can get some answers here. And we'll start uh, throwing up the answers on the screen as we start to see them come in. <laughs> Unsurprisingly, phone. It's interesting, isn't it? This is so far we've had 34 answers and we would love people at home to also be doing this. And uh, for those who are watching this later in the day, this will stay alive for a little while. So we want to... Let's see. What are the things that draw your attention away? We've had 102 responses so far from 42 people. 43 people. Let's see. Let's get as many answers as we can. What are the... 109 responses... So the way this works is the biggest words are the one that's said by the most people. Social media, work, TV. <laughs> uh, someone anonymously put their wife there. I, 
going to leave that alone? <laughs> a few people put their wife, obviously, because it's a bit bigger, but you know, that's interesting. Uh, food, toxic people, cats. Cats. Where's Bridie? Is she doing that? She's at home. <laughs> I actually think knowing what distracts you is quite important. Knowing what distracts you is quite important. And we're going to come now to Jesus' final teaching for us in the book of Matthew. It's not his final teaching chronologically, but the final teaching we're going to dive into. So it is the Pharisees coming to him. And, and you can kind of understand for the Pharisees because they, they find it hard to keep it all together. Uh, do you know there, there were 613 commandments in the Old Testament? 613. We've been working our way through Matthew. It's taken us four years. This is one book. And there's nowhere near 613 commandments in Matthew. So you try and work out. They're, they're saying to him, what, how, how on earth do we know what's most important? What are, what are we meant to be focusing on? And Jesus gives them an answer. You would think, wouldn't you, that he'd go straight to the Ten Commandments because they were like the, the core of the law, but he, no, he doesn't go to the Ten Commandments. He responds with the laws that are actually not about what you do. He said the most important thing is not about what you do. Religion gets us in trouble when we think it's about what we do. No, he said what's most important is who you love. The most important thing in your life is not what you do, it's who you love. And he says that the starting point is love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. Again, this is where, as we come to the Bible, we sometimes have problems because uh, those words, heart, soul and mind, mean something different for us than they did for Jewish people in the first century. For us, the heart is your feeling world. You, if you say you love someone with all your heart, you love them you know, with your feelings, you have nice warm feelings about them. But in Jewish idiom, the heart wasn't so much your feelings. I think I've said this before, the feelings were your bowels, which actually, when you think about it, it's probably a bit more right. You get your butterflies in your tummy and it's probably, it probably, your feelings are probably often more down there. But your heart was the centre and source of your will, your choices. It wasn't... So it's not saying love the Lord your God with all your feelings. It's saying love the Lord your God with all that you are is what heart means. And your soul is also the totality of who you are. There'd be kind of an overlap between heart and soul. And interestingly enough, love the Lord your God with your mind. To make choices about your mind. This is something I want to talk more about as we keep going forward and keep wrestling with what it means to follow Jesus. But... Uh, there are a whole lot of people who are paid good money to take control of your mind from you. There are a whole lot of people who are paid good money to take control of your mind for you. They are the advertising industry, your phone company. There are psychologists who are behind how social media works and phones. There are psychologists who help design TikTok 
And all these people are trying to take control of your mind. And what Jesus is saying is, no, you need to take control. And as you take control, make sure your mind is focused on loving God. What does it mean to take control? Well, the, the, the early church looked at Jesus' life and said, he made a whole lot of choices. And those choices are things we probably need to emulate. They, the church came to call them spiritual practices. As a, Christ, as a Christian church, we want to sort of follow in the lineage of the church and do our best to work out what does it mean to love God with all our heart and soul and mind. And so we want to take spiritual practices seriously too. That's why we have these banners up the front of the church. And you'll see we've got where it says follow, that's an acronym, and things like fasting and prayer, observing the Sabbath, listening to God, learning the Bible, offering tithe and time, and worshipping are practices you choose to do. You don't always have to feel like doing it. Often I don't initially feel like sitting down with a Bible. But they are choices you choose to make so that you take charge of your feeling world and your thinking world. Similarly, where we say blessing people is where you uh, make choices to do things that benefit other people, where you make choices to listen to the Holy Spirit, to eat with people, to study Jesus' way and to be sent and with a purpose, to discover the calling that God has on your life. You will not discover the calling God has on your life if you let the people who are paid to take control of your attention take control of your attention. You actually have to make conscious choices to put yourself in a place where God can influence you. And that will often mean doing things that you don't feel like doing because you can't always trust your feelings. Because often they are shaped by all the other noise that happens around you. Jesus goes on and he says, they ask him for one thing and they give him two. And he says, the second is like it. You've got to love your neighbour as yourself. Don't know if you noticed on the uh, video of Pastor Paul, one of the things he was sharing with the people in the church that caused that man to burst into tears. I don't know if you saw him just starting to burst into tears. Saying, if you want to follow Jesus, you've got to love your neighbours. <laughs> We, we have over-personalised Christianity and so we've made it about having our own personal relationship with God, which is important. But the Bible is very clear that there's no such thing as a solo Christian. That our faith is something that's done in community. And if you have something against your neighbour, that's actually a big deal that what Jesus says is the second most important thing you can do is to love your neighbour. And for those who are wondering about who your neighbour is, Jesus tells a story in the book of Luke about the Good Samaritan that basically says your neighbour is anybody you come into contact with and particularly those you come into contact with that need a hand. Your neighbour is anyone you come into contact with and particularly those you come into contact with that need a hand, is what Jesus seems to be saying in the story of the Good Samaritan. I 
as a young bloke, thought I was going to change the world. And someone fortunately gave me a book by the name of Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Anyone come across that? I found it really helpful. Uh, basically, because he had these two circles. I've been writing about this in my, uh, the book I'm working on at the moment. It's why I'm it's in my head. Uh, he says, all of us have a, what he calls a circle of influence, things we can control, and a circle of concern, things we get worried about. And he, and he says, one of the things that is a sign of unhealth is where you are worried about things you can't control. You can't, if you spend your life worried about things you can't control, that's where you start living a life where you blame everybody else and get frustrated. But I realised, and as a young, why it was so helpful for me, as a young bloke, I just saw everything everyone else should be doing and saw how the world should work. And so I spent a lot of energy thinking about what everyone else should be doing and, and less energy on, you know, things I could control. And it was a helpful, God used that book to teach me to focus on the things I could control. But I actually think that we in the Christian church have reversed it. After all, we can through prayer, influence lots of things. But many of us have shrunk down the things we worry about to just our family or our job or our... And it's easy to shrink down your world so that you walk past the Samaritan on the side, walk past the, the injured person on the side of the road. God calls us to shrink down to, to grow, rather, our area of concern so that we care about the people who are in touch with us and particularly the people that need a hand. It's easy to want to blame other people who've got issues. Jesus says, no, you've got to care for them. You've got to love your neighbour. I actually think there is a real danger for the Western Christian church that we've shrunk our area of concern so small that it mainly just involves us and the people in our little networks. And particularly when there are such big questions in the world, like what's happening in the Middle East or what's happening in the Ukraine or with so many homeless people here in Hobart, it's easier to look the other way and to focus on small things. I think what Jesus is saying here is, your task is to love God and love your neighbour and let me take care of everything else. Jesus is most interested in who you love. Now, I, uh, there's a book by the name, by, by a fellow called James K.A. Smith. And again, this is, this is something for us to come to terms with because often we've overemphasised getting the right ideas. And in fact, when we talk about people coming to faith, we've often overemphasised, you know, get your ideas lined up. What he, what he points out is that Jesus doesn't care as much about what you think initially. He says this, our wants and longings and desires are at the core of our identity. They are where our actions and behaviour come from. Our wants, what we want, come from our heart, the epicentre of the human person and that's why scripture says, above all else, guard your heart for everything you do flows from it. In Proverbs 4.23, discipleship with Jesus or following Jesus then is a way to take control of your heart, to curate your heart, is what James K.A. Smith says. 
to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. James K.A. Smith goes on to say, you become what you love. You become what you love. What you love is the most important thing about you. And so can you be honest about the things you love that are in the wrong priority? Augustine when he wrote his book, uh, The City of God, said the issue isn't so much that we love things, it's that we get our orders, that get the order wrong. So it's not wrong to love a car or love a house. It's just wrong if you love that more than God or more than your family. It's actually wrong to love your family more than you love God, is what Augustine says and that's what Jesus is saying here. The most important thing about you is what you love. And so we're called to love Jesus. And as we finish the book of Matthew, we get this clear sense Jesus is calling us to live a life centred around him. He, at the end of Matthew 22, it's like the Pharisees and Sadducees have been taking turns, saying, okay, we'll sort you out, and and they each go back discovering that they really don't know what they're talking about. Uh, But then Jesus says, okay, let's finish this. And, And Jesus says, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? The son of David, they replied. He said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared ask him any more questions. One of the things I hope you've found as we looked at Matthew is that you need to read Matthew with the Old Testament open. Because there's all kinds of references. And here, Jesus isn't just making these words up. He's quoting Psalm 110. Did you know that? And do you know what's profound about Psalm 110? Is that the Lord it's talking about there is Yahweh. So what Jesus is saying by quoting Psalm 110 is I and the Father are one. I'm God. And as we get to the end of Matthew, we, we, we come to terms with the fact that we, this little baby born in Bethlehem, we're going to talk more about as we go into this coming month, is Emmanuel, God with us. And that the great temptation we will all face is to find other gods. And what defines other gods for you isn't necessarily some little statue somewhere. It is what you love more than God. They are your idols. What you love more than God are your idols. And what you love more than your neighbours 
is something to keep an eye on. I have a sense that Jesus is waiting for people. I, I, I don't know how you found the, our prayer week where we had all these prayer requests coming through. We had a, a word, a prophetic word this year from Maureen Hoskin, uh, who, Hoskins, who was part of our church family, and she said, I feel like God's telling us that there's a whole lot of people in the shadows watching and waiting and looking for hope and waiting to see whether people will be ready to be there. And I think people will be there ready to love their neighbours. I think the central question for us is, is is our circle of concern big enough to encompass people who are other than our families, people who are other than our friends, people who are other than the ones that we naturally relate to. Are we really ready to love God with all our heart and soul and mind and strength and love our neighbour as ourselves? This is, it's, it's not complicated. It's not complicated. But we have to face the fact that there is a world out there that is actively vying for your attention and is telling you a different story. It's telling you that you should love success, that you should love your car or your house or your girlfriend or your boyfriend or your job, or you, you, should, you should love something else other than God and other than your neighbour. When, you, when we boil it down, it's not complicated. Jesus is clear. And fundamentally, as we finish the book of Matthew, this is the question for us as a church family. Is Jesus actually Lord? No, really, is is Jesus Lord? Are you willing to put your life in his hands? Are you willing to hand over all that you value to one who is infinitely more valuable and infinitely more trustworthy than you are? I think Maureen was right. I think there are people God wants to bring to our church family. I think there are Nepalese people looking on and saying there's something about that Nepalese congregation that I like. I think there are people here on the eastern shore looking on and saying there's something about what they're doing. I I, I like that. I think there's some people in the northern suburbs, all over Hobart, saying, I need hope. And ultimately, the question for us, as we leave the book of Matthew, is, what do we love? Do we love our security? Do we love our status? Do we love our money? Do we love our holidays? Do we love our education? 
or do we love the Lord our God with all our heart and our soul and our mind and love our neighbours as ourselves? It's not complicated, but we're going to need Jesus' help. I think you'll agree. Let's pray. Jesus, it, it isn't complicated. You made it very clear. It's simply about who we love. As human beings who are fallen, we have to acknowledge the fact that often we're, our loves are disordered. We love the wrong things. Sometimes we love our family too much or we love our job too much or money too much or holidays too much or we love the wrong things in the wrong order. None of those things are wrong in of themselves, but Jesus, they're wrong when we get the order wrong. Can you help us look at you? Can you help us order our lives around you? Can you help us give our lives to you? And even as we come to uh, after lunch today, as we come to our budget meeting, Jesus, we want you to lead our church. That's what we're about. We want you to be in charge of the church. So please, even in our meetings, can you take charge? But in our day-to-day lives, can you take charge and help us have the courage to place our life in your hands? We need your help. We can't do it on our own and thank you that you never intended us to. Jesus, we want to be people who love you with all our heart and soul and mind and love our neighbours as yourself. Can you build us as that kind of people? We ask this in your name. Amen.